The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Mark 15, I'm going to read verses 2 through 15. Please follow along as I do. This will be the passage for today's sermon. And Pilate asked him, that is, asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prisoner in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The word of the Lord. Now, Father, I pray that the uh, words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer, as I come in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Tom Wright, a British theologian, a great gift to the church, uh, made this observation in his commentary on Mark. I'm going to have it on the screen for you so you can read it along with me as I read it. Speaking on Mark 15 and and what is unfolding, Tom Wright, this is the event that declared that God was God. That he was picking up the reins of power to rule on earth as in heaven. It must mean that. It can only mean that. But it must then mean that the very nature of power, of God's exercise of power, of the power that rules the world, has been so radically redefined that most people simply wouldn't recognize it. As Isaiah said, who would have believed that he, speaking of Jesus, was the arm of the Lord? This isn't what power looks like in our world. Tom Wright. 
One of the surprises I found as I preached through Mark is how few times he uses the word love in his discipleship manual. The word shows up just four times in his gospel. And three of those are when Jesus is asked about the greatest commandment. So three out of the four come in a very small section of the gospel. Most of us were taught that John 3.16 is the best place to start an evangelistic conversation because, of course, it focuses on the love of God for the world. That's how most 20th century evangelical church-going people were taught. For God so loved the world. That was on signs they held up at football stadiums in the 1970s. Remember that guy with the rainbow wig and he was there in the end zone holding up John 3.16. That's how we were taught. But Mark, however, knew no such constraints. Instead, he puts his focus on power, which he uses seven times, and authority, which he uses ten times. But it's not only in the choice of words, but it's also in the stories that he tells which reveal then the theme of power. From the very outset, the kingdom of God is envisioned as a thing of power that you must repent so that you can believe in it and receive it. He gives us the authority of John the Baptist, the last great prophet of God the authority of the Father and Spirit, who at the baptism of Jesus confirmed the deity and identity of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, the authority of Jesus over all things. And you might remember that crowded room we talked about all the way back in January where the paralytic is dropped through the roof and the, uh, uh, the Jewish leadership, the scribes are there. And what does Jesus say? He says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and go home. So here's my point. While love may reveal the heart of God, it is His power that flows from His great heart of love that will free creation from the powers that have enslaved it including you and including me. You say, well, how does God do this? How does God then show his power so much so that it, it, it frees all of the cosmos, including you and me? He does it through his son who comes as a servant. Who believed our report, Isaiah asked. That's what we read. Who believed our report? That a servant would come. Now, that's strange, isn't it? That to do something so incredibly difficult, God would come in the form of a servant. Because, you know, if you and I were going to redeem the world, we would not come as servants. We would come using power to, first and foremost, take care of our own concerns. Now, I don't care if you're in a grocery store line you're waiting in traffic, wherever you are, if you don't actually do it, you most likely think about it subconsciously, and that is, how is this going to affect me? I, I did it the other day in the line at Target. 
I always choose the wrong line. And it's not always the lady trying to find the phone on her coupon that's outdated and arguing with the clerk that it should be honored anyway. And you're standing there just trying to be the good Christian boy you were raised to be. And then you just jump lines and then you're frustrated. And then, oh, she, get, and, and you know, and uh, it's your own concern. I don't care if the woman got a discount on her few items, but shouldn't I have been? Instead of the speed with which I think I deserve to be checked out at Target. And you do the same thing. And if we had power, the kind of power that it would take to redeem the world, the world would look like we want it to look like. The way we wish the world would run and operate. That's what Tom Wright meant when he wrote about a redefinition of power. You see, we would find people like Pilate. We would find people like Barabbas. We would find the religious leaders. And then we would make sure they do what we want and the way we want them to do it. So that the world ends up looking like we want it to look. Sorry, Matt Vessel. Everybody would be Chicago Blackhawk fans and not Detroit Red Wing fans. Bear fans, Dan, not Brown fans. Everybody would love to play chess. Anybody in here play chess? I don't. <laughs> you see what I mean? This is how we think about it. But when God sets out to redeem the world, he gives up power to overcome power. And as we move into the second phase of the trial of Jesus, a trial that ultimately leads to a conviction and then death by crucifixion, we see how power is used and how power is abused. And you know, it would help to get a mental picture of the scene. So kind of imagine in your mind what it must have looked like that day. And first, there is Jesus. He's all alone. No one is with Jesus to represent his concerns. He is there alone. And then, of course, there's Pilate. In his, you know, regal robes and his scepter of authority and, you know, the thing on his head that shows he's important. His advisors, the military force that surrounds him. He's got the weight of the empire backing his every move. And then you've got the religious leaders. And you've got their mob that is formed out in front there that are going to do their bidding. Now get that scene in your mind and then ask yourself this question... Who appears to be powerless? Who appears to be powerless? It, it would be Jesus, right? I mean, he's the one that looks like he's done for. You know, a, a little stain on the spot of, you know, of history, out of the way, never to be thought about again, Jesus of Nazareth. But looks are deceiving because what cannot be detected in that moment is the power of God's righteousness at work through the obedience of Jesus. And the power of righteousness will always look weak, just as it looks weak today. That's why there are churches all over the world, in America especially, filled to overflowing with people whose you know, felt needs are getting met, so sure, they'll come and pay a few dollars, but there's no power of transformation because the power of righteousness is at work. Because the power of righteousness against the things of this world always looks inconsequential, always looks weak. 
What does a righteous person look like in the midst of an ocean of unrighteousness? You don't matter. And that's the scene that is set before us. The power of righteousness that looks weak, however, is exactly what is going to overcome the power of evil. The power of God's righteousness. The Jews believed they had the upper hand and were going to use Pilate to carry out their every demand, which would, of course, mean the death of Jesus. But what we find out, right, is that evil overplays its hand. Evil overplays its hand. And as it does, the power of God's righteousness wins the day. And so the scene unfolds with a critical question in verse number 2. When Pilate asks this of Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds, uh, well, you, you've said it. You said so. It, 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 immediately, you, you've got this man who is all alone, turning the table, as it were, on Pilate. It's as if Jesus looks at Pilate and says, well, thank you very much for saying what needs to be said. And Pilate doesn't even know what he's done. By Pilate asking... And Jesus not denying, the church finds hope. Because Jesus is not going to fight the way humans fight. He's not that kind of a king. He will instead die for his kingdom so that the kingdom would find life in him. And you know, if we would begin to more closely follow the lead of Jesus on this, we would find the tables turning as well. Because, you know, very often the accusations that are kind of leveled against the church really are forms of questions that can open the door so that we can give clarification about who Jesus is and about what Jesus is all about. But unlike Jesus, the church very often is so defensive, a chip on its shoulder, Looking for a fight. And this is, of course, one way to use power. And the church has done that throughout its existence. But what we will see later in the sermon is that human power always fails. Human power always fails. And that, and that leads then to a second question as Jesus is standing there alone, and there is Pilate and his entourage. Here's the religious leaders. Pilate asks him this question. Jesus says, well, thank you very much, Pilate. You've answered correctly. Gold star in your head. The religious leaders begin to accuse Jesus of all kinds of things. And you kind of imagine, Pilate's like, hey, hey, hush up over there. And, and he looks at Jesus, and he says, have you no answer to make? Don't, don't you see how many charges they bring against you? And, and Mark tells us in verse 5, Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now, I don't know about you, but I think it might take a lot to amaze a man like Pilate. I suspect by this point of his career, he had already heard all of the excuses, all of the reasons, all of the pleadings that would come from a prisoner facing 
crucifixion. If you ever want to have an insightful time, sit down with somebody who's, who's been in law enforcement for any length of time and just ask them, what are the excuses you've heard after you've pulled somebody over? It just is very insightful. I remember Dick Painter, who retired as a state police officer, telling me one time about a guy who pulled over and went through a stop sign. And he said to him, hey, you know, sir, you ran the stop sign. Why'd you do that? And the man said, well, my brakes failed. I couldn't come to a stop. And Dick says, okay, hold on just a second. I'm going to call a tow truck for you, and we'll take your car away. And the guy goes, wait, wait, what are you talking about? He goes, oh, my car. And, and, and you know, Officer Painter's well, like, I can't let you drive around with brakes that are failing. The guy says, oh, my brakes are fine. I just didn't stop at the stop sign, you know. And the truth comes up. And that's how it works, Right? You're getting accused. You respond. Pilate is amazed. Here is a man who is facing certain death. The hill's right over there. The cross awaits. And Pilate looks at him and says, you're not going to say anything? No groveling? No cursing? No despising? Nothing? Jesus offers no answer to the accusations made by the Jews. And you know, the question that Pilate uh, asked of Jesus would be normal questions that you would ask a person in that situation. But Pilate, like the rest of humanity, by the way, doesn't understand what is happening in that moment as the power of righteousness, the power of God's righteousness at work in the obedience of Jesus Christ. And that points us to what we read earlier from Isaiah. The Lord has bared his holy arm before all the nations and all the ends of the earth. We'll see the salvation of our God. You know, even though Pilate cannot perceive the larger picture, it doesn't leave him guiltless. The unwillingness of Pilate to act with justice toward Jesus will lead towards the greatest injustice ever done by humankind. Mark tells us that Pilate knew that the Jews had delivered Jesus over out of jealousy, out of envy. And on that account, Pilate seems to be making some effort, right, to uh, release Jesus. But in the end, again, Pilate does exactly what people do. They protect their own interest. And he does this by making this offer. Now, apparently, Pilate had set up this idea that to appease the people around the time of the festival of Passover, which always was a problematic time, he would release a prisoner, give back somebody, kind of an exchange program, so that the leaders would ensure peace. Didn't always work, but it was a good political move by Pilate. And the people have come up and say, hey, what about the, the, the gift you were going to give us? You know, what about this prisoner release thing? Are you going to do that? Pilate said, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that. Who would you rather have, Barabbas or Jesus? Barabbas or Jesus? Mark condenses the details of what happened between Pilate and the Jewish leadership. The other Gospels give us more information. There's a lot more back and forth going on than Mark reveals, but the outcome is the same. And Pilate ensures that his interests are covered over 
the interest of justice. You know, beyond the facts of the case which prove the innocence of Jesus, a miscarriage of justice is taking place as Jesus is traded in for Barabbas, who, by the way, right, was justly convicted for his crimes. A murderer and an insurrectionist. Matthew refers to Barabbas as a notorious prisoner. John calls him a robber. Luke and Mark, though, get to the heart of why Barabbas is in jail. They tell us that he was guilty of murder during the insurrection. Something that would have stuck out in people's minds. So Pilate has to make a choice. I'm going to choose between a murderer who incited a riot and a man that I know has done no wrong. And what does he do? He asks the crowd what they'd like him to do. What a bold move by a political leader. Let's incite the crowd and see what they want. And there are the chief priests out in the mob, stirring up the people, demanding the release of Barabbas. Let Jesus be crucified. Jesus, the one man who gave the people hope through the manifestation of his divine power, is traded in for a man who tried to give the people hope through human power. This is the work of evil as it blinds people and leads them astray, even to the point of trading in an innocent man for a guilty man for no other reason than to satisfy a crowd. You got that scene in your mind? There's Jesus all alone. Pilate, his entourage, the chief priest and their entourage, the mob of the people, and now Barabbas, even Barabbas, has more power in that moment than Jesus. As Barabbas leverages the goodwill of Pilate and the goodwill of the priests stirring up the people. I think there are two questions we should be asking about this scene. The first is, what do we make of what Jesus did, and what do we make of what Pilate did? Now, I'm not asking a question about moral equivalency. Of course, Jesus is more pure and holy and ethical and moral than Pilate. That's not what I'm asking. What I'm asking is, what do we make of it as far as what will our response be? How will we train ourselves in matters such as this because evil continues to rise in influence all around us evil continues to deceive and blind people great injustices are being done today in the name of justice and mercy but as the scripture teaches the mercy of the wicked is cruel Stacey Abrams who is running for governor of the state of Georgia publicly took a stand this past week that said up until the baby is born it should be allowed to be aborted. And she very 
very well may win the state of Georgia. The mercy of the wicked is cruel. What are we to do? Do we run to the power that is self-protective and self-promoting, or do we run into the name of the Lord, who is a strong tower that the righteous run into and find safety, Proverbs 18? What are we going to do with the long after effects of the pandemic? Not just health effects, relationships, economics, Existential fear, anxiety, worry, displacement, all of it. What are we going to do? How are we going to respond? What are we going to do about the rise of evil within human sexuality? What are we going to do? What about the continued violence? about the hopelessness we see all around us in our communities shops being boarded up crime on the rise anger seething just below the surface will the church by faith run into the lord who is indeed a strong tower where we may find safety or will we try to save our necks by exercising power like the jews and Pilate and the people who said crucify him crucify him what will we make of what jesus did and of what pilate did now here's the second question what should we make about this exchange of jesus for barabbas it is here that the whole theme of power and authority in mark finds firm footing if jesus is the messiah the god man the son of man as mark has stated then we can be assured that out of this unjust exchange, justice will be done because the power of God's righteousness will be displayed in Jesus. As the great act of substitutionary atonement is just about to be completed, we have this picture of the gospel laid bare before us. One man for one man. The just for the unjust, the sinless, for the sinner, the pure, for the impure. This is what is going to unfold before us next week as Jesus goes to the cross and he atones for sin. And all of that is true and a personal response must be made to it. We must turn from our sins and we by faith must believe and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ because that is the power of God that is going to save us. But I don't think Mark at this moment has substitutionary atonement in view. I think Mark is drilling down into this theme of power and authority that has dominated his gospel. And what we need to see that in this moment, as this exchange takes place, that God is turning over more tables than just tables in the temple. He is turning over how power is to be used so that salvation that can reach the entire cosmos. So that the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. 
And it is in that we need to find strength. We don't need to just live with the glory and the foretaste of substitution for our sins, as wonderful as that is. We need to find strength in knowing that the power of the righteous and holy God has undone all unjust acts by humans because of what Jesus did as the servant of God. And how did he do it? He absorbed the injustice into himself. He embraced fully the life of a servant. And as he did, the righteousness of God then rises up in Christ. It crushes the head of the serpent and things begin to be turned right side up. And this is why we can say that the future is Jesus Christ. The future is Jesus Christ. Well, as history continues to repeat itself, and trades in the infinite power of God's righteousness for the finite power of humanity, I pray that we will learn to rest in and on the power and authority of the crucified and risen Christ, who is indeed the King. And the way we do that is vitally important. If we are going to be the kinds of jars of clay that Paul envisioned. Instead of being loud and boisterous and demanding, let us learn again how to absorb the suffering of the world around us. Let us learn how to take in the hardships and the disappointments of people who do not know that Jesus is King. What will you do with the man called king of the Jews? That's what Pilate asked the Jews, and they shouted, crucify him. And people are going to do the same today. And as they do, then let us, in the power of the Spirit, have the same response as Jesus had, so that the power of God's righteousness that comes to us through faith in Jesus overcomes the evil as we do good. Amen. Father, I thank you for your word to us today and as we walk forward in Mark 15 and think more on this in the coming week, would you, O Lord, rise up within us, grant to us great confidence, grant to us great grace to do your work, O Lord, in the way you would have us to do it so that the righteousness of God that comes through faith will empower us. As we prepare ourselves for the table, I pray that you might examine your heart and mind thoroughly, asking for God's mercy to be shown to you, that we can share together in this great communion, the great feast of the Lord. Let's be quiet and examine our own hearts. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.